several years ago, after a month-long retreat on Maui, uh, the local Sangha came and helped us gather all of the retreat cooking equipment and bedding and mats and futons and sitting cushions and things like that. And we took them to our house and put them in storage for the next retreat. And it takes, you know, several hours to do that and several uh, people volunteered to help. And at the end of the day, when everything had been put away, I looked around to make sure that there was nothing else to be put away and I saw a box of supplies from the kitchen left. So I went to look through the box and I rummaged around and I picked up a box of <clears throat> cookies and I said to my friend Duke, how would you like to have a box of wheat-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, dairy-free, <laughs> tasteless, chocolate-less, chocolate chip cookies? <laughs> and he said, there are some things in life I can do without. <laughs> so tonight I want to talk about those things in life we can do without. And do quite well without, actually. I want to talk about renunciation. Now, renunciation doesn't have a good pedigree in the West. So I'm going to have to make the effort to show you the practice and the wisdom of letting go. Now, the paramis are the forces of purity that the bodhisattva had to perfect, to develop over many lifetimes in order to prepare his heart-mind for the wisdom of awakening. And it is, they are the qualities of mind that we too develop in our life, both in intensive practice like this, but in our uh, everyday uh, householder life, our civic, social, domestic, professional uh, commitments, obligations, activities. And they are the forces of generosity, loving kindness, equanimity, renunciation, effort, resolve, wisdom, patience. And they're all practices of letting go. All of them, they're practices of letting go in order to find and discover something else within us that is more precious than holding on. So on retreat, like this, we leave our home, our family, our friends, our usual weekend distractions, and we come to a place like this, not in order to indulge more of our usual and familiar, but to actually do without, to do without all that activity, and see if there isn't a way to find some ease, some contentment, something of value in doing without. And we see that it really involves not so much keeping busy and getting and having and doing and becoming and sharing. It has to do with our own heart and how our how we attend to our own heart in relation to the events, the internal and external events of our life. The subtle are 
the more refined, the more subtle happiness that we find occasionally on retreat, uh, isn't so dependent on activities and things and people. But it develop, it, it's more dependent upon the quality of our heart. So, renunciation, or the practice of renunciation, letting go, entails moving from this, um, the, this momentary happiness that we get from sensory pleasures, which we enjoy, and there's no doubt it's happiness, it brings us a kind of happiness, but moving from that to a more refined, enduring happiness, maybe a really a sense of well-being that is peaceful and not dependent on things, people, and activities. So it's important to understand that renunciation is not just an ascetic, torturous uh, withdrawal from pleasure, but rather that it's a joyful practice that brings joy, happiness, relief, and a subtler sense of well-being, if practiced correctly. So there we have these two views of the Bodhisattva, the being who was to become the Buddha, born into a wealthy, uh, regal, possibly, family in India 2,600 years ago, and lived the life of something like a prince, where he just had all of the, uh, the best that was available to him uh, at that time. A life of ease and enjoyment and the training of a nobleman, uh, and it was quite pleasant. But the Bodhisattva's karmic momentum to become a Buddha was more powerful than that, and in time he saw, he understood, he grew into realizing that there's suffering in the world. Old age, sickness, death. And it wasn't just old age, sickness, and death that he realized, but when he, re when he saw them, he saw a fourth heavenly messenger. And the fourth heavenly messenger was an ascetic. Someone who had abandoned all that accoutrements of life and was looking for release of suffering through spiritual discipline. So it was that view, that understanding that it was possible to, to search for this end of suffering that led him to leave the palace, undertake severe uh, ascetic disciplines for six years. And when you read about those disciplines, it's like, we got it cushy here. I mean, it, it was really torturous. You know, and then we have the Bodhisattva living as a prince, we have the Bodhisattva living as an ascetic, and yet upon his awakening he characterized his understanding as the uh, happiness of peace through renunciation. Santisukha. Peaceful happiness. Which is really the midway, the middle path between denial and indulgence. Oh, okay. So we don't have to be an ascetic, torturous, living in a torturous uh, life of deprivation. 
That's not the Buddha's path. But rather it is the middle way. Between indulgence in all that we, we can and do indulge in, and you know, denial. So this topic of renunciation is important because we don't really hear about it so much, and we don't have many role models in our society. Even though it is an archetype within us, there's some kind of a there's some kind of a pattern of living simply, if you want to put it in the most recognizable form, living simply. Whether it's Thoreau's living simply just to front the essentials of life. Great renunciation for a Westerner. So, renunciation. Renunciation is letting go. Right? The second noble truth of the Buddha's awakening, you know, there's their suffering. The second noble truth is that suffering is caused by hanging on, clinging, craving. The end of suffering, the third noble truth, is realized by letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. And renunciation is letting go. And of course the grossest form of attachment and indulgence we have is to sense pleasures. Just enjoying all of the uh, subtlest as well as gross pleasures of the flesh, if you will. Not to make it wrong, but just to say it's pretty seductive. The things, the knowledge, the people, the knowledge, the, just everything that we can enjoy with the sense doors. We're very familiar with the pleasure of that. But it doesn't last. No matter how enjoyable this meal, this movie, this music, this sex, these drugs, whatever it is, doesn't last. It doesn't last in the moment. It doesn't last throughout a lifetime. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with it. It's just that we can't reliably indulge in it for happiness. And so we get we get a glimpse that pleasure, no matter how much, doesn't lead to happiness. And so it quite naturally turns us to look at something else. What? You know, just the pursuit of pleasure is exhausting. When you're young, you can do it. You know, later it's more noticeable. <laughs> but renunciation, and we know, has something else to offer. Not just the indulgence and pleasure, but uh, a growing and enduring sense of well-being. The Buddha said, if by renouncing a lesser happiness, a lesser happiness, one attains to a happiness that is greater, then it is the wise ones who pursue that happiness which is greater. Well, there was this famous experiment done now 40 years ago probably with uh, psychologists tormenting little kids. <laughs> Meaning, they had some little, little kids in, in, a, in, a, in a room with a one-way mirror, a two-way mirror, whatever it is, and they said to the, the kids, you know, here's popcorn, or here's a candy bar, or here's a piece of candy, something. They gave them something that a kid would really want. And they say, you can have this. I'm going to step out of the room for a minute. 
And when I come back, if you still have the candy, if you haven't eaten it, I'll give you another one. <laughs> but if you've eaten it, then, well, if you've eaten it. So then the, the, the psychological tester would go out of the room, turn around, close it all, watch, watch them through the mirror, and there were some kids that would immediately just go, candy, choop, plop. That was good. Mm-mm-mm-mm. And there'd be others who would just say, nope, I'm going to wait for another one. <laughs> I'm going to have two. <laughs> and then there were some that was like, yeah, you know, they'd look at it, and they'd maybe unwrap it, and, you know, put it down, and, you know, and, and it, just, it just was tortured with, you know, they want it, but they really want two of it. Well, they followed these children up into their adult years, and those who were able to, you know, just kind of put it aside for something greater are the ones who have been, in one sense, from one measurement, more successful, happier. Hmm. And, they, and now these now these kids, I think, are in their forties or so. They're growing up, so they have had a, a track of them. But we can see how difficult that would be, even for us, whether it's candy or candy. <laughs> But the, the Buddha offers us another possibility of being a renunciate or practicing renunciation. And he left home to wander as an ascetic, which he could do in India of those days. We here in the West don't have that much of an opportunity, except we go and retreat and temporarily practice some renunciation. It's a little easier to do on retreat than at home, right? Nevertheless, we still have to work with the conditions that we live with. So, what is it, really, that we're talking about when we talk about renunciation? We're talking about letting go, but what? Just not enjoying life? Dilgo Kinsey Rinpoche, great Tibetan master of the last century, articulates the high bar of renunciation, but in a way that we can resonate with. Listen. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. And with this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. A heartfelt weariness and disillusionment with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. I think it's fair to say we all, at times, <coughs> feel that. Wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be nice to just be able to step off the treadmill <coughs> and feel, you know? at ease with that. That is the seed of renunciation. That's the <coughs> potential lying dormant within us that gets activated periodically or, you know, at the end of a retreat. You know, you go on a retreat for a week or longer. At the end of the retreat, there's this exquisiteness that is hard to leave. It's just like, there's something about it that's pretty... Not seductive, but 
resonates with some, some part of us. So, how do we do this? It sounds like it's going to be tough, going to be possibly painful, but let me just point to the way that we already have practiced renunciation a lot and haven't even noticed it. <clears throat> Remember when you were a young child and you had a favorite toy, whether it's a bike or a bat or a ball or a doll or a musical instrument or a sport that you played or whatever it was that was just your life. It was just what was the most enjoyable, satisfying, exciting thing to do for a period of time. Right? And we've all had many of those things. And we just get totally enwrapped in. Well, where is it now? Where is that doll, that ball, that bite, that musical instrument, or that other person? You know, some of those things might be in the attic, might be in the cellar, but they're not in your heart. So you let go. We let go of what we found the most enjoyable thing in our life at a former time. And it wasn't even painful. We outgrew it, we say. We outgrew it. Meaning, our heart no longer resonated with that kind of activity or that kind of enjoyment. It's not that we don't enjoy things. We transfer our attachment from one thing to another, to another, to another, until now, in our adult years, we still have the same kind of relationship to other enjoyable things. And we've, we've gotten a lot more sophisticated, and maybe it's our career, maybe it's our retirement account, maybe it's our home, maybe it's our social relations, whatever it is. But we still have this, you know, these things in our life that we find enjoyable. And we, you know, keep kind of growing or going through them, growing through them. Of course, the body quite naturally just grows up, grows old, passes away. The mind doesn't stop growing either, meaning the heart doesn't stop growing. If we choose, we can continue to grow. We don't have to stay as an infant, you know, just kind of one day a toy, the next day a doll, the next day a bike. It's a choice we have. Because different things matter to us in our life. And you're all here on retreat. Why? Well, because something about awareness, uh, calming the mind, understanding the mind, awakening, whatever you want to call it, whatever it is for you, is important to you. It has become important enough to you to spend this kind of time letting go of, temporarily, everything else that you're currently able to enjoy in your life. We might say that we have an aspiration. We have an aspiration to awaken somehow. Let me just put it in that short form. We each have some interest in awakening. Now, what is it in your life that you have to let go of in order to fulfill your aspiration? Huh. 
okay, years ago, living in the commune, as I've mentioned before, really into the Grateful Dead, accidentally stumbled upon the Dharma and started practicing the Dharma more, going to retreats. Well, after a few years, I had this wonderful, I mean, just, you know, the most exquisite, desired uh, conjunction of conditions. I was going to do a two-week retreat. You know, two weeks, you really get calm down, chilled out, open up. The last day of which the Grateful Dead were playing in Providence just an hour away. (laughs) Hey, hey, hey. So I got my ticket, did my retreat, fourth day of the retreat, kind of snuck out of the hall, got in the car, drove down to Providence, went to the Grateful Dead concert, which had always been, yeah, okay. It was terrible. (laughs) It was so loud and so crowded and so hot and so impactful. And I was really open and sensitive, you know, after two weeks. And it was just like, wow. I had kind of outgrown my enjoyment of that kind of activity. I didn't know it. I didn't know that, you know, in the few years, intervening years between my last show and this show, and with all the practice of Dharma and appreciation of the subtleties of more subtleties of the mind, I didn't realize that I had outgrown this former adult enjoyment. So, I would like to recommend <laughs> get the recording. <laughs> I'd like to recommend that you take a look that you just take and rummage around in the attics of your life or the cellars of your life, wherever it is, and see what it is that you have acquired, accumulated, grabbed onto, what baggage you're carrying around from your early adult years, earlier adult years, that no longer serves your aspiration. It might be political beliefs, it might be economic activity, it might be how much you earn, how much you spend, it might be uh, people in your life that just you don't resonate with anymore, beliefs that you don't subscribe to anymore. There's, There's all kinds of baggage that we carry around with us that actually is a impediment or a burden, a weight, consuming energy just to hold on to it that is needed for our spiritual journey. And if we don't look, if we don't, if we don't look and discover what is, it, what is it that I'm hanging on to, we won't let it go. It just, it just gets carried around, carried on. And so we have these beliefs and things and activities and assumptions that serve their purpose at a former time of life but they may not be serving you now. So, this kind of renunciation is outgrowing, but letting go consciously of what we've outgrown. And that takes acknowledging what our current direction in life is. Direction being the direction of our aspiration. So not all letting go is painful. 
There's a second way of practicing renunciation, letting go, which is a choice that we make to be generous. We have all the opportunities in the world to be generous with our time, our knowledge, our energy, our love, our resources, and we are faced every day with endless need. And yet, we often don't see it. We don't see the opportunities to share. And so often, we don't take that, don't take the opportunity. But when we do awaken to the joy of generosity, the happiness that comes with generosity, then we can see that, oh, this too is a form of renunciation, letting go, intentional letting go, but it brings a subtler, a more enduring happiness, a sense of abundance, a sense of connected humanity. There's benefits to the letting go of practicing generosity. I'll have more to say about this later, but I just wanted to mention that this too is another way of practicing renunciation, letting go. But I want to move on to a third way of practicing renunciation that is a choice that we make. And it's a choice that we're practicing here by keeping the precepts. Now, why is it we're keeping these precepts anyway? Well, just to guide our behavior, our speech and our behavior, so that we don't accidentally or carelessly cause harm to others for which we would then feel regret, remorse, guilt, whatever it is, and we would suffer. And so we practice out of compassion, letting go of our possible preferences, or at least our carelessness. And this is sometimes informed by knowledge and wisdom. It's like, you know what, to speak like this, or like that, we recognize doesn't feel well, doesn't feel good, it's hurtful, you know, and we know that because we pay attention to ourselves. When someone speaks to us like that, carelessly, deceptively, harshly, ridiculous stuff, whatever it is, and we feel kind of, or even hurt, then we know, oh, that, speaking like that, when I speak like that, Others feel hurt, you know, put upon, assaulted, whatever. And so because of this knowledge from our own mindful observation of our own experience, we can exercise this restraint. We can let go of acting out what might be deeply conditioned habits. You know, which is shading the truth and embellishing you know, uh, minor things to major things, and, you know, just filling up the airwaves with uh, some papalapawada, which is useless and meaningless speech, and gossiping, and other things that cause, other ways of speaking that cause harm. And there's the use of intoxicants, you know, very well tolerated in our society, you know, and yet, tremendous amount of suffering caused by the misuse of intoxicants. So when we when we see for ourselves, oh, this is this is what it feels like. 
this is how I feel hurt, this is how I hurt myself, this is how I harm others, then it's easy to practice letting go. But it takes some knowledge. Now, <clears throat> here's you decades ago now, I used to smoke cigarettes and other things, but cigarettes I'm talking about now. I used to smoke cigarettes and I, I really enjoyed it. You know, when I was a teenager in my early, and in my early 20s. And, you know, nothing, after, nothing like a cigarette after a meal or with a, a drink. And it was just very enjoyable. And then the Surgeon General of the U.S. comes out with this report that says, if you smoke, you continue to smoke, your lungs are going to look like this. You know, and your, your tongue is going to look like that. And it's like, oh my God. So I just said, whoo. In anticipation of possible unpleasant consequences, I think I'll practice some renunciation. And gave it up. wasn't so hard, because the uh, possibility of suffering with the effects of smoking, in this case, were so unpleasant. It's wisdom that appreciates consequences. Or wisdom is anticipation of consequences. Now, there's some people that will smoke all their life and not get <laughs> diseased, but not many. Okay, so the statistics are such that it was easy to see, you know, it would be, it would be wise of me to stop smoking. The Buddha had a comment about this. He said, even though the pleasure is great, the remorse is greater. <laughs> it is easy to do that which is of no real benefit to oneself. But it is difficult indeed to do that which is truly beneficial and good. So he acknowledged that it's difficult to do that which is good for oneself. It's not because it's your fault. It's just this is the way of the mind. Okay. So it takes some, you know, resolve. It takes some commitment. It takes some uh, keeping foremost in your mind the wisdom of a decision like that and to keep you know, to, to follow your heart's aspiration and to let go of that which, you know, could quite likely cause suffering. But really this, this kind of commitment of practicing sila, or practicing non-harming through speech and action, is really about simplifying your life. Just like, cut to the chase, what's really important here you know, not just why, you know, reckless indulgence as we might have enjoyed when we were younger, but rather some kind of uh, self-discipline, self-training, some kind of uh, marshalling of our energy towards worthy goals in our life. So it's important to just acknowledge that we do have choices in our life. And we do have to let go of a lot. I remember when I was teaching the three-month course, it's from late September to mid-December. And I would teach for three months. And I'd go home. And that was back when you still had catalogs. And I would arrive home, and the pre-Christmas catalog had arrived, and there were hundreds, not that I was a big 
buyer for catalog because you don't have to buy much and everybody gets your name. So I get home and there were, you know, a hundred catalogs of a hundred pages each of things I have never needed until now. <laughs> and I notice what happens. If I pick up a catalog and I just start, you know, kind of thumbing through it, as you turn the page, on every page there's five or six things that your mind quickly scans. Yes, yes, no, 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 maybe. Fold over the corner of the page. Okay, next page. No, 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 no. no. Maybe. Fold over the page. Okay, two maybes. So fold over the bottom corner of the page. Oh, this one is a yes. Tear out the page. Okay. <laughs> and you go through this. You go through a hundred pages of this, five, five items on each page. You looked at 500 things. Your mind has gone into 500 directions. Now your mind is totally dissipated, totally dispersed, and it's in such a state of desire that you'll buy something just to get rid of that feeling. <laughs> I know, I, I saw that happen for several years. So, this kind of renunciation is recognizing more what your aspiration is and what decision do you make in your life that support it or encumber it or impede it, really. Making a commitment to your practice is not easy, but it has immense reward. One time coming home from the three-month course, Kyle and I went down to the resort to have a, a meal, and we had this wonderful meal at Four Seasons. No, yeah, Four Seasons. Wonderful meal. And at the end of this full meal, we decided to have dessert, looked through the dessert thing, and picked out the chocolate, 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 chocolate. <laughs> that kind of dessert. So we brought it. At the end of the meal, it just dipped in and enjoyed the chocolate, 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 chocolate. At the end of which, felt like not very good. And I just blurted out. I just blurted out the gum. I said, I'm not going to eat anymore. This, this makes me sick. I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. <laughs> she goes, what did you say? Said, I'm not going to eat any chocolate for a year. She said, you're kidding. I said, no, I'm not. She said, well, if you're going to not eat chocolate, I guess I better not either. So I made a commitment not to eat chocolate for a year. And we like chocolate. I like chocolate. A lot. <laughs> so, for a year, then you ate chocolate. Now, we made one exception. <laughs> if we got an upgrade to first class, and they served chocolate, we could have it. <laughs> it wasn't our choice, you know? I mean, it just... <laughs> that didn't happen that often, but nevertheless, we, we allowed ourselves a little... Anyway. So, you know, first few times we went to a restaurant to eat, and then, you know, at the end of the meal, you went to the menu, and you see the chocolate, because that's where your eyes go, my eyes go, chocolate, you know, and then, and then you got these other choices. Well, I learned two things from this year of no chocolate. First thing is, key lime pie is not so bad. <laughs> and the second is, the power of a decisive commitment is unbelievable. But it has to come from this place now. Not, you're not 
doing it to please anybody else. You're not doing it because you should do it. You're doing it from this place of choice to support your practice. And that that kind of... It's hard to get to the commitment, the decisiveness of a commitment. But once you do, it is really powerful. It supports you to make that choice correctly again and again. You know, in the first few times, it was like, mm-hmm, should I, shouldn't I? But after a couple of times of reaffirming the decision, it didn't bother. It was not a bother at all. And so it's something to know about decisive letting go. Okay, so these are three ways of letting go, practicing renunciation, through choice. Choosing to let go of what no longer serves our purpose, practicing generosity, and practicing sila, letting go of careless behaviors of speaking and acting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.